Good morning. My name is Eric. I get to be the pastor here. Uh, let's try this. I'm excited to be here. How about you? Yeah, all right. So good morning, Ryan. Glad you could make it. I love the band in the front row. I love it. Uh, thanks for being here. This is our second week at Maple Grove Middle School. We're glad that you found us. Uh, as Josh said, yeah, we have our Sunday fun day. And if you have kids, go back and pick them up like normal. If you don't have kids, you can take the shortcut and go that way through the cafeteria. And that's where we'll be hanging out uh, for the Sunday fun day. But we are in this series uh, called Acts to the Ends of the Earth. And the book of Acts tells the amazing story of how a group of ordinary people, blue-collar workers, tax collectors, women, uh, started their largest religious movement in history. And the story really is quite remarkable. Because really, never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. After Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he gathered up all his disciples on the side of a mountain and he gave them his final instructions. He says, wait in Jerusalem. And we've talked about how time waiting isn't time wasted. Uh, there's always a season of preparation when God gives us our mission before we're sent out. And he says, but wait, and then you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will talk about this message of grace and love and forgiveness to the ends of the world. And then Jesus, he shoots off into, up into heaven. You know, he blasts off and the disciples are staring up at, at heaven. They're like looking around. They're like, where'd he go? And, and I imagine one of them, maybe Peter, maybe John, maybe James is like, did I hear him right? Did he say to the ends of the world? Like, does Jesus know how big the world is? Like, that's a really big task. And never had a, a bigger assignment than given to a less qualified group of people. Have you ever faced a situation like that where you felt like, man, I'm just not qualified for this? I'm, I'm guessing each of us have had those situations. Those who are parents, the first time that we get that baby, and then, you know, like three days later, we strap it into a car seat, and they allow us to drive away from the hospital. It's like, there's no instruction manual. This is crazy. You know, I remember uh, first time being a pastor and being trusted with a bunch of students uh, as a youth pastor and be like, I don't know what to do with teenagers. You know, I'm barely out of being a teenager. What am I going to do here? Uh, I remember we lived in Colorado, and the first time we decided to climb a mountain. Uh, yeah, that was a smart idea. Uh, but, you know, out there, a lot of people just climb these 14ers, which are 14,000 uh, feet mountains. And I remember the first time we got ready, you know, we got up at like 4 in the morning because it takes like 8 hours to do it. And as we got to the bottom of uh, Beerstadt Mountain, I was like, what am I doing? I don't know how to climb a mountain. I don't know what I'm doing. But I did it. And I'm sure each of us have had that situation. It's like, what do we do when we're faced with an impossible situation? Well, the followers of Jesus had maybe the craziest task ever given. And, and how did they do it? How did this ragtag group of disciples spread the message of Jesus, of grace and hope to the ends of the world? We said last week, they succeeded because we're here today in Maple Grove Middle School. Like, we're a long ways away from Jerusalem. And that gospel message spread throughout the whole world. So how did they do it? How did they turn the Roman Empire upside down and spread the good news of Jesus of Nazareth to the ends of the earth? Well, two things. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write these down. And uh, we give you a note sheet. And if you haven't discovered it yet, most of your chairs have a little hidden uh, desk on the side. So you can pull that up if you want to take notes. Uh, don't feel like you have to. Uh, but the first thing that Jesus gave them to accomplish this impossible mission was he gave them the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Acts 1-8, he promised them that they would receive power. And, and that was the Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, 
only a few people had access to, that on the day of Pentecost, on Acts, in Acts chapter 2, now everyone had access to the same power. And so the first thing that these early followers of Jesus, how did they accomplish this impossible mission was where they had the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guided them and empowered them in the building of his church. And we talked that really the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit is moving through Peter and Philip and Paul and Barnabas. And, and the Holy Spirit is the chief character, the chief mover in the book of Acts. And so how did the disciples do this? How did they spread this message to the ends of the world? They had the Holy Spirit. And number two, they had a rock-solid conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. They had a rock-solid conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, when they faced obstacles they couldn't overcome, when, when Rome put their leaders in prison, when their families were being fed to lions, when they had no money, no resources, they kept going because they knew that they served a savior and a leader they saw that he was dead, and he predicted that, and then he rose again. And they knew that if you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, that's someone that we can follow, and that's someone who's going to be there for us and to fill us and empower us. And church, if we believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead and give us the same power that raised him that's in us, how much confidence do we have in our mission? That's my hope for us today. And the disciples were filled with confidence. They were filled with the Holy Spirit because the foundation of their hope, the foundation of what they build the church on, the foundation that Christianity was built on was not a book, not even a book as good as the Bible. Now you might hear that and be like, wait, wait, what, what did he just say? That Christianity is not founded on the Bible? Well, here's the deal. The disciples didn't have the Bible. They were writing it. <laughs> Christianity was founded on an event. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the foundation of what we believe. Our hope is found in the fact that God sent his only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins in our place, and then he rose again. And that was what filled the disciples with confidence, is that event and this early church, as they saw this happened, they were pretty much exclusively all Jewish. And they started following Jesus and living out this message of grace. And they started taking care of one another and the least of these. And, and we've seen that as we've studied Acts, how they started taking care of people and loving and serving. But they still had some issues. See, early on, they had this issue of mixing and matching covenants. Our first year as a church, we went through the book of Genesis. And we talked about how that's the foundation. That's, that's the kind of the this history that undergirds our faith. How God created us to have a relationship with, with him, but then sin comes in and wrecks that relationship. We talk a lot about creation and then curse, that we've been cursed under the effects of sin. But then God establishes these covenants that if you do this, then I will do this. And with Noah and with Abraham and with David, and that, that's the story of the Old Testament is, is God moving towards us by establishing these covenants. But they were all very much, if you do this, then I will do this. If you will do this, I will do this. And so the early Jewish Christians, they had, a, they had this kind of bad habit of, of sticking to those old covenants and trying to mix and match. 
And, uh, you know, there, it's, it's, for them, it's like a, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses, a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses. And, and it took them 20 years, but eventually they broke that habit. And I'm convinced that we need to break that habit as well of adding things on to Jesus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, amen? amen. So last week we talked about how this church was planted uh, in the city of Antioch about 300 miles away from Jerusalem where Jesus had, had risen and, and then that's where the church had, had started to outbreak out of there. And Paul and Barnabas had traveled 300 miles from home to plant this new church in this Gentile city. It's not Jewish. And their message was that God had done something amazing in the world. And soon enough, these Gentiles started to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. And the message of Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles of Antioch was very simple. God had done something extraordinary in the world. He sent his son, Jesus, to pay for your sins. You no longer have to sacrifice to all these gods, and you're invited to follow him. You can find forgiveness and grace. And all these Gentiles are like, wow, that makes way more sense than this paganism that we've been following, that we have to sacrifice to all these different gods. You tell me there's one God, and, and he sent his son as a final sacrifice once and for all, and I no longer have to go to the temple. I no longer have to make all these sacrifices. I no longer have to try to appease these capricious gods who I don't really know what they want. You're telling me that I can have a relationship with the living God? And so these Gentiles, like you and me, unless we, you were born Jewish, they started following after this Jesus. And they're like, wow, what an amazing news. What an amazing story that we can find forgiveness. Well, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the kind of mix and match Jewish Christians hear about what's going on in Antioch, and they're like, uh-uh, we're not going to have that. These Gentiles, if, if they're going to follow Jesus, they got to become Jewish first, and then they can become Christians. So they send their own missionaries to Antioch to correct what they think is Paul's terrible theology, that it's just Jesus. And their message, they come after Paul to say, uh, the, keeping the law of Moses is a condition for salvation and inclusion. You have to keep the whole Old Covenant. You have to keep all the Ten Commandments if you're going to be included in this new uh, following of Jesus. And they said, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to, and you'll be included in the church, you're going to have to keep all the law of Moses. So that's kind of a quick recap of our story. Everyone caught up? Everyone good? All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to dive into Acts 15 today. Uh, before we do that, we just join me in a word of prayer. God, I thank you that you are here with us. And God, we believe that it is through you that we experience joy. God, that it's through you alone that we find true purpose with our life. So God, I pray that each and every one of us, God, that today would be filled up with your joy, with your peace. God, that we'd find purpose and hope. God, that you would use uh, the words of this text so that everyone here would re receive exactly what they need to receive this morning. Uh, work in and around and through my words, that they be your words, not mine. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 15 on your smartphone, on your iPad, your laptop, your old school Bible, or they'll also be here behind me. And we're gonna see that the church encounters a problem that really could have significantly derailed them had they not handled it. And honestly, uh, this is a chapter of the Bible that a lot of pastors, uh, even if they're teaching through the book of Acts, uh, they just kind of skip because it's basically a theological argument and a discussion. And so uh, you probably haven't heard too many sermons on uh, Acts 15, but I think actually this is critical and so important. Uh, and we're going to see why. Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And uh, today I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. 
unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. As I mentioned, a lot of the early Christians, they were Jewish. They'd been raised on the Old Testament law. And one of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. Every guy had to have this little surgery. And it was their sign that they were set apart, different from everyone else, and they were part of the covenant. And that was the mark of their covenant. If you were a Jewish man, it was to be circumcised. That's how you knew you were in. And they circumcised baby boys on the eighth day. Or if you were an adult and you wanted to become a Jewish convert, you had to have this surgery to become Jewish. Well, now these men from Jerusalem show up in Antioch and saying, hey, I know you heard about grace and forgiveness and, and Paul told you about this, this wonderful new life that you can be found through Christ, but he didn't tell you the whole story. Guys, uh, you need to have a little surgical operation uh, after church next week. Uh, this is salvation by surgery. Uh, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, you have to be circumcised. You know, which probably meant that after hearing that, I mean, I'm sure the guys were like, whoa, Paul, what's the deal? He kind of left out a big deal here. You know, my guess is that, you know, the, the, new, the, the, the new to Mosaic churches uh, classes, you know, like uh, starting point was filled with the women while the guys were like, I'm gonna wait in the car because I'm not so sure about this whole needing to have surgery to become a part of the church. And so the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, what they were doing is they're blending the teaching of Moses and the teaching of Jesus. It's a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Moses. You gotta have both these. Verse two, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. They're saying this is a big deal. So they're gonna send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem, 300 miles. They're gonna walk all the way there. You know, in the middle of this ridiculously successful church planting and writing career of Paul, he's gonna go back to settle this issue. Why? this is critical. The question is, what is the Gentiles' relationship to the Old Covenant? What do they have to keep in order to be saved? And really, the way we could ask that is, what is our relationship, you and me, as Gentile Christians today, our relationship with the Old Covenant? Is it believe in Jesus and do these things? Or is it simply by faith and trust in grace alone? Verse four, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted. Well, first, I gotta pause there. All right, if you've been in church for a little while, maybe you grew up Sunday school, you've probably heard of the Pharisees, right? How many, raise your hand, you've heard of the Pharisees, right? Aren't these the ones that killed Jesus, Right? These are the, like the religious people who like couldn't stand them. They argued with them. They kill them. And now they're a part of the church? How did that happen? Because after the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to 500 people, even some of the Pharisees who wanted to kill him, they realized, wow, Jesus really is who he said he was. What an amazing evidence that Jesus really rose again, that even believers who belong to the sect of the Pharisees are part of the church now. But they have this rich history of their Jewish tradition and they're having trouble letting go of all that. And so they stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter, the rock, he stood and addressed them as followers. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles 
so that they could hear the good news and believe. We covered that a couple weeks ago in Acts 10.44. Peter, still a bit of a racist, uh, he sees this vision from heaven where God tells him to kill and eat these animals. He's like, God, I'm not gonna do that. And God tells him, don't call what I've created unclean, or don't call what I've created clean, unclean. And then Peter goes to the house of a Roman centurion, and, and he preaches the gospel, and, and they all receive grace and forgiveness and become saved, and then he sees them receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter's eyes gets opened, and he moves from being a racist to knowing that all people are welcome in God's kingdom. And he says, God knows people's hearts. Man, that's good news, right? God knows our hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles, you and I, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Now, this is a seismic shift for Peter and the whole church. Like, I can't even overemphasize that. In the Old Testament, it's all about how God has chosen and he has his favorites in the nation of Israel that he, he has chosen to bless them. You read the book of Psalms, and yeah, there's like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, and there's these great psalms, but there's also these psalms, and Brian preached on one last year, where they're asking that God would, you know, bash in the heads of some of the Gentiles. You know, that's what the Jewish people thought. It was like, destroy them, break them apart. And that was really the Jewish mindset, that if you're not in, you're, you're an outsider. And it's all about protecting the insiders. And now Peter is saying that God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did us he made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. This is huge. Peter's saying that now everyone is welcomed in. He says, so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? Peter's like, ah, you know what, guys, middle of this business meeting, he's like, I don't know about you, but out of those 613 laws of the Old Testament, I know I couldn't keep them all. Like, I struggled to keep them all. I was, I was born a Jew and grew up doing this. And it's like, you know, no, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't keep up. You know, like Thaddeus, how about you? Could you keep all the laws? Bartholomew, how about you? Could you keep them all? If we, who were raised in this Jewish faith, we couldn't even do it. Why are we trying to put that burden on these new Gentile believers? Verse 11, he says, we believe that we are all saved the same way. Jew, Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, man, woman, whatever. We are all saved the same way. How? By the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. None of us deserve this. None of us could earn it. It's simply by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are all saved. It doesn't matter how you grew up. It doesn't matter what was done to you. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you think you're a good person or a bad person, married, divorced, single, whatever, we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Peter is saying that we, Jesus-following Jews, we must move in the direction of these Gentile outsiders because we are all saved in the same way. How, as a church, are we going to move towards them? He says, I was in the home of a Roman officer, and I saw God do the same thing for them as he did for us. And so even though it means I have to set aside some traditions of mine, that you know what? I grew up believing, Peter says this, he grew up believing that it was a sin to go into the home of a Gentile. And now he says, no, I have to let go of that now. I believed it was wrong to eat 
bacon and shrimp, which is crazy. And now we can. And here's the important seismic shift, is that Jesus didn't come to add to the commands of Moses. Jesus was not an and. It's not keep all these things and believe in Jesus and then you can be saved. Do really good works. If you try really hard and trust in Jesus, then maybe you can go to heaven. If you were born into the right family at the right time and do all these things and add Jesus into that, then you can be saved. Jesus is not some and. Jesus is an instead of. Instead of all our striving, instead of all our working, instead of being born to the right family, the right ethnicity, the right gender, it's instead of. It's Jesus alone, amen? And so Peter finishes talking, and then Paul and Barnabas, it's their turn. Verse 12, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. So now it's James' turn to speak. And I just imagine that everyone in the church is like, okay, quiet. This is James. This is Jesus' brother. It's like, man, you got any questions about Mother Mary, what she was like? Ask James. He's the one. Like, that's, that's his mom, you know? And he's the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this is another one of the primary reasons I believe Jesus truly rose again from the dead. See, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And he grew up thinking that Jesus was crazy, that Jesus thought that he was the Messiah, the promised one. And then, you know, he saw his brother rise from the dead. How many of you have brothers? Yeah. What would it take for you to worship your brother as your Lord? <laughs> right? Like, it's not easy. And here's James worshiping his brother. He's like lead pastor of the new church. He's like, I was wrong. My brother really is the God-man, Jesus, who came, who died, because he, he said he was going to die and rise again. I thought he was crazy, but he pulled it off. My brother really is the savior of the world. And so now James, he's all in. He's leading the church. So James speaks up and says, he says, hey, our prophets foretold this. We should not be surprised by this. And the next thing James says, I want to be one of our major theme statements as a church. This is so important. I want this burned into our brains. This is, I want a part of our DNA. And that's why I didn't want to skip chapter 15. This is so incredibly important. He says, and so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is what we should engrave on the cornerstone of our church. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not make it difficult for anyone who is turning to God. Any obstacle we can eliminate, I think we should what can we do here at Mosaic to not make it difficult for those who are turning to God? Even preferences that I like, things that I'm comfortable with, we should eliminate if it helps people who are turning to God. I don't want to make it difficult for our guests who are drawn to our church, who have heard that God is at work here, they can find grace and community. But then they show up in our kids' rooms and they're overcrowded because we don't have enough volunteers. I don't want to make it difficult when people show up and there's not enough people outside to say good morning and hold the door open for them. That we make it difficult. They don't know where the bathrooms are. That we make it difficult because they want to find community in small groups and we say, nope, no more. Our small groups are full. I never want to get to the point where we're just happy that, hey, just us alone and we're in our little life raft and we're going to go to heaven. We should not make it difficult for anyone 
who is seeking out God, who's trying to find grace and forgiveness and hope. I don't wanna make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans by mixing up politics and religion. I don't wanna make it difficult for Vikings fans or Packers fans or Bears fans, okay? You get my drift here? We don't want to make it difficult for anyone. We don't want any secondary issues getting in the way. Sometimes I'll tell some of our, 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 our leaders and our team is we want to get all weirdness, all difficulties out of the way so that the only thing people have to wrestle with is this crazy idea that Jesus predicted that he would die and rise again, and he pulled it off. That God would send his only son, Jesus, who's fully God, fully man, to step into our place, to pay the price that we could not pay. And then through his resurrection, we have access to the Holy Spirit and peace and forgiveness. And because of Jesus, we don't have to live a life without purpose, just going through and trying to have fun on the weekends and work a job to pay our bills. That we can truly have purpose and know that we're here for a reason to introduce other people to grace and forgiveness so they can find healing from the trauma of their past and that we all are welcomed in, and that when God does something amazing, that we all get a ring when we're on the team. Whether you're on stage, whether you're in the back, whether you're serving behind the scenes, we get to do this together as a team, that we should not make it difficult for those who are seeking God. What does that mean for us as Mosaic? A couple things. Uh, Every church faces some dangerous shifts that we need to avoid Andy Stanley, a pastor down in Georgia, uh, shared these, and I think they're really good, and so I want to share them with our church. Every church, I think every Christian faces these drifts. Number one, the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. The drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Every church goes through this. When we started as a new church, man, we were so excited three years ago. We are here to help people that aren't connected to any church at all to help them find grace and forgiveness and community and purpose. They can plug in and and find a place to serve and and to watch teenagers' lives be changed and and children and and to take care of babies so that parents can come in here and have an hour where they can just worship, they can pray, they can receive ministry, they can receive instruction from God's word. But what happens is we, we drift and it's so easy to drift. And I gotta tell you, this is hard for me, this is hard for any pastor because I have my own preferences. There's things that I want to do. And to continually go back to, no, it's not about my preferences. It's about, I don't want to make it difficult for anyone who's turning to God. Second, honestly, I want to make you guys happy because you guys here in this room are the ones who are going to possibly send me emails complaining about things. (laughs) That's just the truth. See, the people outside who aren't part of any church, who don't know the love of Jesus, they're not sending complaining emails. That's just the truth of it. And so it's like, I want a good job performance. I want to make you happy. And it's so easy to drift from a passion for outsiders to say, hey, we don't exist just for us. We exist as, a, as good news. We're not just a, a, a cruise line. We're just here having fun and doing activities. No, we're a battleship. We're going into enemy territory. We're freeing the captive. We're sharing the good news of Jesus. We get to do this together on mission but it's so easy to drift from that passion for, for those who are lost, for those who feel passionless, for those who feel like they have no purpose, to just pacifying insiders. But we ought not to make it hard for anyone who's turning to God. So I think as a church, we have to constantly ask, are we making it hard? Are we making it hard? One of the reasons we've moved from an elementary school into an auditorium is saying, hey, 
is this making it not as hard for someone who's seeking God? Because I know metal folding chairs aren't very comfortable, amen? And so these seats are a little better. So first, the drift is from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. The second is a, is a drift I think we all face as Christians, as a church, from grace to law. The drift from grace to law. The ones that were calling out that, hey, you have to be circumcised. They were saved. They were following Jesus. They had believed by putting their faith and trust in Christ, but they started to drift back to a rules-based relationship. I think this happens so often is, is we just naturally drift from grace back to law. Now, our list is probably different. We're probably not going around saying, hey, have you been circumcised? Like, that's kind of awkward to ask that question. <laughs> but we can easily kind of say, hey, how's your quiet time with God? How much are you praying? How much are you reading the Bible? How much, are, are you adopting kids overseas? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And, and so often we, we focus more on all those things and think that we can earn God's favor. And we, we, we go back to works. We go back to the law. And we lose. No, 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 it's not about that stuff. Those may be good things. They may help our relationship with God. They may be evidence of it, but man, that doesn't save us. It is simply by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is what saves us. God loves us no more, no less than when we have a quiet time every day and, and, and we go a whole week and we, and we don't do it. That stuff doesn't earn our salvation. That doesn't earn his approval. He just, he loves us. We're saved by grace. You don't have to earn it. You, you won't lose it. Even if you start to drift. But so often, it would just naturally, we, we want to earn it. And so we, we, we drift from grace to law to works. See, the Old Testament was really founded on this vertical relationship between the individual and God. And it really was kind of, we don't really care about what's going on in the rest of the world. That when I mess up with God, I, I sacrifice to make things right. And, and, and it's about appeasing God for, for the sins that I've done. And, it, and, and the Ten Commandments really is about a vertical relationship with God. But what happens was Jesus comes. And he says, the evidence that you are a follower of me is, is not in this vertical. It's in a horizontal relationship. And it's not about being self-centered and focusing, hey, God, are we right? We're just focusing just on us and going deeper and deeper and deeper. See, what Jesus says in John 13, 35 is, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We talk a lot about disciples around here because honestly, it's a lot easier to talk about Christian. Uh, you know, hey, I'm a Christian, which just kind of means whatever you want it to mean. We're a Christian nation. We're a Christian this. Honestly, I think Christian is a really terrible adjective. Uh, it should only be a noun. Um, a Christian is a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says a disciple is someone who is following him. He says, by this, everyone will know if you are my disciples, that you love one another. How will the world know that we're followers of Jesus? Honestly, it's not that we can pray for three hours. It's not that we can enter, enter into worship. It's that we love one another, that we love the world. Jesus goes on to say in John 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
Jesus is saying it's about loving others. It's about serving others. It's about spreading that message of grace and forgiveness. See, that's the opposite of a self-centered relationship that you're focusing, hey, is it just between me and God? That's, that's a self-centered relationship. Instead, Jesus wants us to get out of our comfort zones and say, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. As a church, how are we reaching out? Individually, how are we reaching out? How are we focused on others? How are we living like Jesus who welcomed children, who welcomed the outsiders, who welcomed the broken, who touched the untouchables? And we get fueled up and filled up with the Holy Spirit and we spend time with God and we pray and we read our Bibles so that then we go out and we show Jesus to the world. Number three, there's a drift from a focus on internal transformation to external conformity. From a focus on internal transformation to external conformity. See, the gospel's focus is transforming our hearts so that the love of Christ will spill out and will make a difference in this world. In places that lose that focus of the gospel, they replace a focus on inward transformation with an emphasis on outward conformity. These are churches that become stale and religious. People put on a plastic smile on Sunday morning, pretend to be perfect, all the while their marriage is falling apart or they're ready to throw the towel in or get, give up because they're just trying to conform with what the rest of the world says. That's just about looking like everyone else and just doing the things that everyone else does just so that you don't stand out. But instead, Jesus wants to transform your heart. He wants to change you. He wants to, to sanctify you to help you become more like him. And it's not just about doing what everyone else does and looking perfectly and having a perfect family and the perfect smile. But we drift and we, just, we, we, we don't do that work of, of, God, how are we? How are you working through me? We focus just on the external conformity. These three shifts, I think, can destroy the forward movement of any church, from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders, from grace to law, and from a focus on internals to one on externals. This is a moment in life of the church, a moment of incredible but subtle danger. It really could have ended the rapid expanse of the Christian movement. Many churches go through this. They, just, they stop being passionate about this message of Jesus. But I don't want to make it hard for those in our community who are turning to God. And what is that message of the gospel? It's this, that God wants to know you. God wants to have a relationship with you. He made a way. He came to earth to pay the penalty for your sin, all the ways that you mess up, all the ways that you don't measure up. And he wants to come into your life to forgive you of your sin, to make you a new person. No matter how lost you are, it is done. See, the message of the gospel is not change, clean yourselves up, and then come to Jesus. It's no, come and then he will help you change. No matter how lost you feel, you don't have to clean up to come to him. He'll start cleaning you up when he, you come into, when he comes into your life. If you have not made that, that faith decision, we've talked about this, that there, there, there's a line somewhere. And, and it, it's, 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 it's believing in Jesus. And at some point, we all come to this, this line of saying, man, it's a crazy idea that it's not based on what I've done. It's not based on how good I am at keeping these commandments or, or the, what my family was or what church I was born into. But this idea that God really sent his son, Jesus. He really died. 
and he really rose again. Proving that he had power over sin and death and that God invites me into his family and all I have to do is receive that. All, all it is that by faith I have to trust him, put my hope in him and he'll come into my life and I can serve him and follow him. And we have to make that step of faith over that faith line and say, yes, God, I'm in. I'm in your family. And then once we've crossed that line of faith, we move from just being kind of a friend of God to someone who's working and partnering with God to making a difference in this world. I don't know where you are today. Have you crossed that line of faith? If you have not yet, I wanna give you an opportunity just to cross that line of faith. I'd love to pray with you after service to talk with you. If you want to make that commitment, there's no magical prayer you have to pray. The Bible simply says that you need to believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and then you will be saved. That, that you can put your hope and your trust in Jesus. If you want to make that decision today, you can just mark that on your connection card. We'll have to follow up with you. For those of us who are followers of Christ, where are you at? Have you crossed that line of faith, but, but now you've just been kind of going through the motions? You've just kind of drifted into external conformity, just doing what everyone else has done? Have you drifted from grace and that, and that amazing message that it's not about what you do? It's simply what Jesus has done to try and hard to earn his favor. I wanna encourage you to, to get back to the place where grace excites you. That you can have passion. You can have purpose. You can have life. If a church has burned you, man, I'm so sorry for that. Churches are filled with imperfect people. But I, I hope that you can find it in your heart to trust again, to trust Jesus and to say, you know what? I was made for something more and I wanna to partner together to help people find Jesus, to know him. As a church, we say, let's not make it difficult for those who want to know and follow Jesus. Can you imagine what that would be like if as a church, we did whatever it takes to seek and save the lost that those who are part of our community who don't have friendships, who don't have purpose, who don't have passion, who feel secret shame, they could find forgiveness. If as a church we did whatever it took to save the lost at any cost, to say, man, we're doing this together. I'm gonna let go of my personal preferences so that someone else can find grace and forgiveness, that it's not about me, it's about others. It's about God working through me. Man, I believe we would see something amazing happen in and through us. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, I thank you that you are here. You are here with us. And God, I pray that as a church, we would do whatever it takes to not make it difficult for those who are seeking you, for those who are turning to you. And God, I pray that we would not make it Jesus and this, it would make it Jesus alone. That we would truly know that it is by grace alone, by faith in you that we are saved. Not of our own works, not of our own deeds, not of the family we were born into or the church that we were baptized into at a young age, but it's only through Jesus. And God, I pray that for my heart, for everyone here, that maybe that message of grace and forgiveness has just become kind of stale. Maybe uh, that message has just become com commonplace. 
God, I pray that again, we would just be amazed that you came, that you saved us. God, let us just rediscover the wonder and awe that you came, that you died, you rose again, and now all are welcome. And not only just welcomed into your family, but we're invited to partner with you to continue to spread this message of grace and forgiveness. God, I pray for each and every one of us in this room. God, that you'd fill us with purpose and passion. God, that we would not go just drifting through life, but we would know that we were made for more. God, that we were to just rediscover that. And God, as a church, we would just do all that we can to spread your message. Not of our own power, but through your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? My hope, my prayer is that uh, today was encouraging, uplifting today, that it's not based on what you've done. It's based only on what Christ has done on the cross. Uh, We're gonna go out of here just a few minutes after one more song. Uh, We're gonna celebrate. Again, you can go out that door and pick up your kids uh, and head back to the cafeteria. If you don't have any kids, you can take the shortcut up that door to your right and find your way to the cafeteria. We're gonna have some hot dogs, a bounce house, face painter. Uh, As we go out of here singing, we're we're just gonna receive our offering. And uh, thank you for those who give to our church. We could not do this without, without your, your uh, incredible generosity. Uh, if you have a prayer request, you can drop that off uh, in the offering now. Um, we have a prayer team who prays for those. Uh, our staff gets together on Thursday mornings and we pray over all those requests. We'd love to pray for you, just to know, hey, what's going on in your life? How can we be here to support you? How can we care for you? How can we help you take that next step spiritually and help you, help you grow, help you show the light of Jesus to your friends, to your neighbors? May you know that God doesn't just love you, that he so loves you, that he gave his only son, Jesus, so that you can be welcomed into his family and that you have a purpose here on this earth. And God wants to help you discover what that purpose is. Let's go out of here singing and uh, go have some fun.